Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I'll give you a few more details coming up about the latest plans of vaccinations for kids and as young as infants now. Maybe in a couple of months getting approval for that. Vaccinations for infants. Oh, boy. You think people... If if a if a forty year old healthy man is not willing to get the vaccine, who's who's getting it for their infants? Well, I rushed out to get the damn thing, and if I had little kids, I would be extremely hesitant about getting little kids immunized based on all the data I've seen. When university professor Peter Bogosian resigned from his job a couple of weeks ago, we read his entire resignation letter on the air twice. That's how much respect we have for him and his fight. And we got to talk to him yesterday for, what, over an hour. Yeah. Long story short, Portland State University, where he taught for a decade, has evolved rather quickly into a place that is not made for the free exchange of ideas, but insists on one doctrine being repeated over and over again, uh, does not want a free exchange of ideas. And in fact... They're proud of the fact that there's only one point of view allowed. And so Peter uh, quit um, and, and again, publicly stated his reasons why. Uh, and we had a chance to talk to him, as Jack says, for quite a while yesterday. It was uh, I enjoyed the conversation very much. This topic, uh, the free exchange of ideas, and particularly on college campuses, is my jihad. This is the thing that animates me and probably will for the rest of my life. Uh, it, it We have our entire conversation with Peter as an extra-large podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. We encourage you to read it. I'm sorry, to listen to it. Um, but let's uh, let's play uh, a few of the clips um, on the air. Michael, just go uh, play 30, then we'll comment. The problem comes when you stack a whole department with people who have the same mm. beliefs. And then the kids will go into that and they'll think, well, everybody, my economics professor yep. believes this. He's written all these books. This is true. No, that's why you need intellectual diversity. And the other thing is nobody will trust the bodies of literature and the quote-unquote scholarship coming from, you know, about really important things like global climate change, because they'll say, well, why should I trust, and people have actually said this to me, why should I trust that everybody here is a leftist? And they're right. 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 But if, if you had a mix of people, right, if you, in, 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 a, in a climate science, you know, if you had Christians and everybody, different views, and they came to a, a convergence of opinion, they came to a consensus, now that would be something. That people would then look at that and say, okay, wow, these people like me, they represent my voice. They agree with other people like you and I are agreeing about this stuff. This is is the deck stacked or isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is the fundamental principle upon which our democracy has to be based. We have to have open inquiry. We have to have free speech. And we also have to teach people, you know what? If somebody doesn't agree with you, that's okay. You can still hang out with them. They can still be your friend. You can still go drinking with them. You can still marry them. It's okay. In fact, it's probably good if they don't agree with you about everything. Because then you can have some fun and good conversations. But we've strayed from that because we're not allowing people to have different... That's my book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. We've strayed from that because those conversations don't take place in the university. And it's not only that they don't take place. It's that if somebody has a view that doesn't conform to what's morally fashionable. It's not just like they're wrong, but it's like they're a bad person. And that's the narrative people are putting out. If you don't agree with this, you're a racist. You're a bigot. 
you're a homophobe. Well, how about this? How about maybe I don't agree because I don't see the evidence for it? How, how about that? So a couple of things I want to fill in from our interview with him, but I'll, I'll wait until after we play the clips because I don't want to repeat something he says. But, uh, man, he said a lot of really interesting things about the university culture and why he in particular left his job. Yeah, that's funny. That reminded me. We often receive emails, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com, that start with, I don't agree with you guys 100% of the time. And I think, and I've often said out loud, if you agreed with us 100% of the time, that'd be kind of weird and creepy. I mean... We're, we're too predictable. Anyway, uh, back to uh, Peter Bogosian, clip 31. Just to make things easier, what what's the name you like to put on this this whole thing? Is wokeism what you like best? Or, or you know, it's nice that when we throw around the term Marxist, we all know what we mean. We, I think it, it'd help combat this if we have uh, an agreed-upon term that everybody's using. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you could have an agreed-upon term. Uh, the, the people who participate in woke ideology don't like woke. Helen Pluckrose, author of Cynical Theories, which is the the book on the subject, called it Critical Social Justice. Yeah, it's a genius book. She calls it Critical Social Justice. Uh, whenever I write it, I write it uh, Social Justice, uppercase S and uppercase J. So there is no consensus on this, but I like to term it either um, social justice, social justice ideology, or woke ideology. Gotcha. Sometimes people call it a worldview, too, which is true. It is actually a worldview. It's a worldview that bases itself on the fact that the West is inherently racist, sexist, etc., and we have to destroy the institutions that lead to those things. So saying that sort of stuff, of, of course, is not popular on a lot of college campuses, and it turned out to be particularly unpopular at Portland State. So he was uh, being accused of all kinds of things he didn't do, and he wanted to talk to the uh, president of the college. And he kept trying to get five minutes of the guy's time, and they kept telling him, no, 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 we don't, we don't have time for you. His schedule's too tight. Can't get five minutes. He finally gets to talk to a dean for a little bit. And he mentions to the dean, he told us this story yesterday, that, hey, look, um, so there's a list they put out of uh, college universities and who's got the most free speech and who's got the least free speech. And look here. Our university finished last, and the dean said to him, that's a good thing. And that's when Peter Bogosian realized, I can't work here anymore. Yeah, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, FIRE, puts out that list every year, and Portland State was just miserable for the free exchange of ideas, and the dean was proud of it. The dean and probably many other people, I'm I'm guessing the president and other people at the top of the university, think that's good that they're at the bottom of the list for free speech. Now that is mind blowing. Yeah, you, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't even. I knew there were people that kind of maybe thought that or might say it to other people they knew agreed, but I wouldn't think you'd say it out loud. No, these are people who are so certain that free speech is bad because we don't want anybody combating our ideas. They're, they're glad that they have the least free speech of any university campus. Right, and they're indoctrinating your children, by the way, at a high cost. We have time for one more. Do 32. You mentioned Helen Pluckrose and her co-author James Lindsay's Cynical Theories, and right. the paper you wrote, The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct, and then the work you did with uh, James and Helen, is one of my favorite things that's ever happened. <laughs> um, can you tell us about the, the conceptual penis as a social construct and then the other papers, and what, what, we were try- what were you trying to prove or, or, or you know, expose, and then what was the reaction to it? Sure, happy to tell you about that. So the conceptual penis was a hoax paper, and no way. Alan Sokol. <laughs> yes, there are actually penises. <laughs> um, 
It's really, I'm glad you actually read the paper because I think that the paper is really funny. That's the other thing about ideologues. They have no sense of humor. Um, <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> so w w one of the things that we were trying to do is to show that these bodies of scholarship, they're not rigorous, they're not based on evidence, and they are ideological. And so we wrote the conceptual penis as a social construct, and we published it in a, in a low-ranked journal. It wasn't a great journal. Uh, it was a new journal as well. And we received a tremendous amount of criticism, and much of that criticism was justified. And that criticism was, you didn't prove what you thought you proved about these disciplines. If you want to prove it, you need to do the following things. One, two, three, four, five, etc. And so I said to, to, to Jim, to James Lindsay, dude, this is awesome. They told us exactly what we need to do. So let's do it. He's like, all right. So then we wrote 20 papers, uh, and we forwarded absolutely insane, totally deranged theses. I probably can't say because many of them are sexual on the air right now. Oh, no, uh, it's a podcast. So. If we have to, we'll bleep it. Go ahead. Oh, okay. About, you know, uh, penetrative <laughs> and transphobia and, you know, putting people in ma white males in chains as a form of experiential reparations in the classroom and Wow. That one did not get published. We, we got caught by the Wall Street Journal before we published it. But the goal was to say, so we, we did exactly what people wanted us to do, like exactly what they wanted us to do. So in, but instead of saying, wow, maybe there's a problem here, like maybe this is something we need to think about or be more reflective on because this is informing public policy. Instead of doing that, they came after me. They tried to take my job. That so, was their response to this. So I want to make sure it's 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 clear what you were trying to prove. You were trying to prove that these fields that masquerade as science aren't science. It's not just that they're not science. It's that it's that they are the musings of ideologues. There, yeah. There's no evidence for these. So so the the background piece that you need to know is, as a general rule, there are maybe a few exceptions to this, but this is almost a rule. Seven papers in seven years is tenure. Right, this is a job for life. I had no background in this stuff. Jim had no background. Helen had no background. Jim's a mathematician. And we delved into the literature. We did a deep dive in the literature. We really read the journals. We read the articles. We did our homework plus plus. And the, the point was to show that the policies that were shaping our institutions, first the university or the university system as an institution, and then the policies as they were seeping out. These are not, not only are they not scientific, they're not anything. They're just a bunch of people get together. We call it a, a, a term Brett Weinstein uses for when we went over his house. He's the Ever, Ever, former Evergreen professor, and we were explaining the grievance studies thing early on. He said, oh, it's like idea laundering. So a bunch of ideologues get together, and they have, um, th they have an idea. And they're, they're in academia, and they publish that idea. They discharge a moral impulse in, in a journal, and then it comes out as the other side is knowledge. So then they go around pointing when you say, well, how do you know? They point to the bogus scholarship that they themselves made up. But that's not based on evidence. And not only that, you couldn't publish anything in there that went against what, what was morally fashionable. Like the I whole ecosystem exists to prop up certain moral conclusions. And they teach that to people, credential themselves, get tenure, and then hire other people who believe the same things. That's how 
that's why you have ideological capture of the university institutions. That's the mechanism. That's how they've done it. And we have the whole podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. I hope that's not too complicated for people to follow or you understand how the process works. So they proved, uh, him and his friends proved, that you can get anything, as long as it agrees with the ideology somewhat, you can get anything published in one of these journals with, with no actual experiments or facts or anything to back it up. And then once these people get this stuff published, then other people refer to them. <laughs> because as was published in the Journal of Whatchamacallit about right. uh, male, you know, being uh, white men being the root of all evil, and then they refer to each other's fake stuff, and then and then you've got that one to build upon it. So now you've got another one built on five other fake papers, and you re- and it just it kind of builds on itself. As he said, idea laundering, and it comes out the other end is supposed knowledge. It's wild. I hate to give you homework, but maybe we can link at armstrongandgetty.com uh, uh, Peter Bogosian's letter of resignation from Barry Weiss's Substack. You can read that, then listen to the, the podcast, because that fills in a lot of the blanks. But we really enjoy the convo. I hope you do, too. Yeah, armstrongandgetty.com. We've been talking for years about these various studies that show nobody ever reads any of these journals or anything like these, these periodicals. So if you get something published, what, once a year for seven years or whatever he said, you get tenure, you get that job for life. And it can be complete crap. Just absolute 100% horse crap. The rape culture of dog parks, as they famously uh, wrote about. As long as it fits into the same ideology they have. Right. Yep. Uh, proven stuff the other direction is not going to make it. But anyway, good stuff. Check it out at armstrongandgetty.com. Armstrong and Getty. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty Show. What are they doing here? Uh, Tim Timmons is signaling to the tarp. I think the folks, the ground crew members behind the tarp, I think the tarp is a little bit angled out from the wall. And the grounds crew is being sent back into the grounds crew area. They're being kicked off the field. Why is that? I've never seen that. The what umpire I, ejected the ground crew? How come? <laughs> I didn't, he didn't like the tarp. I don't know. Does, what was going on there, Michael? Do you know? I don't know. Alex. Hi. What was going on there? Uh, so it was the uh, top of the ninth. The Orioles are ahead three to two, but I guess there was weather in the area. But the grounds crew was sitting all behind the tarp, and I guess that umpire didn't like how close they were to the field, mm. so he kicked them out. And the next pitch, the Yankees hit a two-run or uh, yeah, two-run single to take the lead. So them getting kicked out affected the pitcher and affected the outcome of the game. No. Oh. Boo. So thank you, Alex, in the newsroom. Here's something that'll make you throw up in your mouth a little bit if you're looking for that. Super. Late night shows are teaming up to tackle climate change. On September 22nd, all seven. You're right. You're right. On the same night, all seven network and cable late night shows will take on climate change for the hour. And that includes Fallon, Myers, Colbert, Corden. Kimmel, Samantha B, and The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. All those shows are going to do climate change specials on the same night. Well, whatever. <sighs> it's a sickener. And I think it's probably true, and man probably has a role in it, but 
there's no agreed upon conclusion or what we're going to do about it. And, and you're supposed to be funny, so just whatever. It's just all so sanctimonious and yeah. self-congratulatory. And just the whole them bravely doing right. what everybody they know thinks is right. That's perfect. That's the perfect angle on this for all this sort of stuff. The the people that get credit for being brave all the time who are doing with what all their friends and viewers agree with. Right, right. <laughs> just just marching in lops, lockstep like Nazis. What would be interesting is if one well, of them... I'm sorry. You know what? Like any military force, they're just marching in lockstep. Did I actually bring up Nazis? Yeah, I did. hate when people bring up Nazis. <laughs> Only a Nazi would bring up Nazis. Um, I, I wish one of them would have on uh, Obama's former climate guy who's got the book out who says, look, I've looked at the data here. It's not nearly as conclusive as people are saying. And that's that, that by the way, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I should dig it back up because it's it's pretty big stuff. I mean, he's got a whole bunch of questions and conclusions he's come to saying the data is being misconstrued or or exaggerated. It reminds me very much of the, sto- the story we were talking about yesterday that om- uh, roughly half of the people hospitalized because of COVID are actually just hospitalized and they got COVID, but they had, they broke their leg or their spleen is wrong or something. They're not hospitalized because of COVID. Right, and that story hasn't gotten near the attention it should have. That was brave of the Atlantic to publish that because I'm sure not a lot of their readership uh, dug that. But they or did their it. staff. Yeah, or their staff, right. Yeah. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Today is Mr. Lawrence Brooks's 112th birthday. My sunshine, my only sunshine. This is one of the days that the entire staff of the World War II Museum looks forward to. We all love Mr. Brooks. World's oldest living World War II vet celebrated his birthday. He's 112. Got out of his wheelchair and did a little dance, from there what you. I understand. There you go. Take that, Nazis. Huh? We're still standing and dancing. Just to follow this up quickly, Pfizer is seeking approval from the FDA for giving the vaccine to babies, not just you know kids below 12, but down to infants as young as six months. And that could happen in the next two months. So... I don't know if there'll be any mandates around this, but if there are, I mean, if there's some push toward um, babies need to get the vaccine before they're allowed to go to childcare or anything like that, uh, oh boy, you think there's a uproar now? Oh, you're going to see some real passion. I'd like to see a serious look at the risk and uh, benefit analysis there. I mean, even with with kids, it's not clear to me that there's enough of a threat from COVID to justify the uh, myocarditis that that they're seeing although that's rarely a serious problem i just can and there's so many people who are just they they would do it just to prove that they hated trump you know because that weird tribal thing jab my baby i hate trump give a good Je- jab jeez what the stop it elton john has canceled his fall tour because of worsening pain he's pretty old sorry to hear that hope he's okay um 
gun buying has been uh, a craze for quite a while now. I mean, record after record after record after record, month after month after month of people buying guns. Here's the most interesting part of that, though. Half of new U.S. buyers since the start of 2019 were women. Traditionally, about 10% of all gun sales go to women. It's now half. Wow. Now that is interesting. It is. Finally, you've brought us something interesting. And as it says there, <laughs> um, it was mostly driven about around the chaos in the summer of 2019 when there were riots all over the country. And just, you know, you're watching lawlessness on TV every night, seeing that police forces either couldn't or wouldn't do anything about it. Politicians and media pretending it wasn't happening. People reacted the way human beings have reacted since the dawn of time. When they feel afraid for their own safety, they figured out a way to protect themselves. So there you go. Right. And I would say, and certainly in your blue states where they've systematically decriminalized crime, it's become clear as crimes exploded that you have to be able to protect yourself in the, you know, admittedly unlikely, but nightmare scenario that you're the only one who can. When seconds count, the cops are minutes away. So the former commander of the U.S. forces in Afghanistan testified behind closed doors to Congress yesterday. A GOP senator came out and said, well, one of the things he told us is that he disagreed completely with with, with Biden's uh, withdrawal plan. And uh, oh, no, like, no, all so. my generals, uh, all the generals said we should do it this way, said the poor senile old fellow. Now, those of you on the other side of the argument, which is most of America would say, of course the generals want to keep fighting the wars forever. Who would ever pull the plug if generals were in charge? So there is some there is some argument there. There's no doubt about mm-hmm. it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Pope Francis has waded into the debate over not whether or not you should give communion to Catholic politicians who support abortion, particularly around Joe Biden. If a, if a politician is Catholic and is for abortion, there have been churches in the past that would not give communion and even though the pope maintains that abortion is accepting abortion is accepting homicide which is a pretty strong statement he reiterated his belief that the eucharist is not a prize for the perfect but rather a gift of the presence of jesus in the church which seems like a pretty reasonable stance i gotta go with him there i'm with the pope on that one not fallible on this one There are plenty of uh, allegedly Catholic uh, politicians who play up their Catholicism for votes and are flaming hypocrites. But I think uh, old Franny makes a pretty solid point. Oh, speaking of the gun thing and protecting yourself, you know, it would have been appropriate to throw this in. Portland, Oregon residents calling 911 for emergencies are facing a dramatic increase in hold times. Officials say the system is broken. Some details on that story, and and this was kind of accidental, but apropos, I suppose, a quick word from our friends at Simply Safe Home Security, our favorite home security company, award-winning U.S. News & World Report, just named the best home security system of 2021. They have a brand-new wireless outdoor security camera that is super cool. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm pro-gun. I own a gun. But this is another thing to add to your arsenal is this really fantastic camera with the ultra-wide 140-degree field of view so you can keep a watch over your entire yard or street or whatever. 1080p HD resolution, 8 times zoom. So you can actually zoom in on a license number or a face or whatever you need to do. Built-in spotlight color night vision. This is a great camera. And 
It integrates perfectly with your Simply Safe home system battery operated. You can put it anywhere. Anywhere it doesn't need to be near an outlet. Yeah, I'm installing these things, and I'm going to put up some signs that say "Smile, you're on camera." Oh, yeah. I like it, and I own a gun. Visit simplysafe.com/armstrong. Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com/armstrong. These are really nice people too. Simplysafe.com/armstrong. So, according to the Oregonian, starting in the late spring, the riot-gripped city of Portland has faced a sharp increase in 911 calls placed on hold. Hold. Picture this now. There's somebody scary outside your house. You call the cops. You're on hold for two minutes or longer. Oh, my God. The national standard for 911 hold times is 15 to 20 seconds. But according to data from the Portland Bureau of Emergency Communications, 574 out of 911 calls, more than half, had to wait on hold for more than five minutes. No way. In in July, which is doubled from May and drastically more than the figure in March when it was only eight. Picture in the reasons people call 911. Someone's having a heart attack. Your kid is choking. House is on fire. Guy knocking on the door. You think he's got a weapon. Any of those scenarios, that five minutes would seem like a lifetime. You'd think, well, you'd think, why the hell did I even call? Bob Kazi, who's the director of Portland's Bureau of Emergency Communications, said, quote, I think it's horrible. There's no other way to state it. We're at a tipping point now. It's become unmanageable. The system is broken. He noted a significant increase in the volume of 911 and non-emergency calls that his department receives, as well as a staffing shortage. We're contributing to the hold times. Oh, See, that, goes this, is, some of stats. this is what makes conservatives mad. There are core things government should do like this and they got to do it well. And in some of your blue states where they're spending gazillions of dollars on the homeless situation and accomplishing nothing. Making or, it easier for junkies to do drugs. Or a gazillion dollars on various programs for this and that equity or whatever it is that accomplish little to no good. And the core things government should do, like if I call 911 in an emergency, like the one time in my life I ever need to, somebody freaking can answer the phone in less than five minutes. During a shootout on September 4th at a Pearl District restaurant, callers had to wait seven more than seven and a half minutes before a dispatcher answered as Portland experiences a doubling of homicides. A doubling this year. That's incredible. By the way... Hey, uh, keep, keep voting blue. Keep voting Democrat. Keep instituting those policies. They're doing great. Getting back to the beginning of this hour and uh, interviewing Peter Bogosian, who used to be a professor at Portland State, but had to resign because they are the least free-speechy campus in America. This has gotten national attention, worldwide attention. Worldwide attention he's gotten. The Oregonian... Main newspaper in Oregon has not contacted him for an interview. Unfriggin' believable. What else do you need to say? Yeah, it's they disgusting. Have no, you have no interest in that story that's gotten worldwide attention? No. No left organization, media, has, has contacted him, wants to talk about him, uh, uh, talk to him, rather, about the throttling of free speech at Oregon. In Oregon, at Portland State, whatever. Uh, our extra-large podcast with Peter Bogosian, available at armstrongandgetty.com. want to talk to you about, and, and this kind of relates to what's going on in America right now. By the way, I've got breaking Roomba news. Breaking Roomba news. Is that 
the robot vacuum, or is that an exercise where gals wear Lululemon? That's Zumba? Is that what that is? Zumba. No, yeah. Roomba, the robot vacuum. Breaking Roomba news on the way. And the mouse utopia experiment that turned into an apocalypse? Does it explain what's happening today? Stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Tumultuous Trinidadian testicle tale continues. Dr. Anthony Fauci has weighed in on Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's testy. I'm sorry, I didn't have my headphones all the way on. Did you say Anthony Fauci weighed the man's testes? No, weighs in on. Oh, sorry. Yes, things. Dr. Fauci has flown to Trinidad with a scale. <laughs> and an orchidometer. To weigh Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's testy. No, but he has, weighed, he has weighed in on the story, and we'll have that coming up. And did you actually say we have breaking Roomba news? Yes, and we do. How long will that take? You want to do it before this or after? How about after? Okay. So uh, not one, but several of our beloved listeners emailed us uh, at Armstrong uh, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com when we were talking about the changes to society, the people not coupling, lower birth rates, uh, rising crime, etc. Uh, they, they sent us a link to various descriptions of the mouse utopia experiment. Uh, sometimes known as Universe 25, that was conducted in the 70s. You may remember in the 70s there was a great deal of concern Disco about... Disco ruled! <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, it did. Uh, and it was a benevolent rulership, too. Everyone's rights were respected. Um, uh, there was a great concern about uh, population increase, and they thought once we hit, like, 7 billion, everybody will starve to death, but then various changes in technology, farming, blah, blah, blah. We got plenty of food for everybody. Um, We're all but, fat, for crying out loud. Yeah, that's a good point. But while everyone was worried about lack of resources, one behavioral researcher sought to answer a different question. John B. Calhoun wanted to know what would happen with society if all of our appetites are catered for and all of our needs are met. Yeah, good question. Well, he set about creating a series of experiments with mice. The most infamous of the experiments was named quite dramatically Universe 25. Here's what he did. <clears throat> he, he took four breeding pairs of mice, placed them inside a utopia, an environment that was designed to elim- eliminate any problems that would lead to mortality in the wild. Uh, limitless food, water, uh, shelter, uh, nesting material. The weather was kept at a perfect temperature for mice, no predators, obviously. And then he chose the mice specifically for their health from the National Institutes of Health uh, breeding colony. Give um, me your best mice. <laughs> <laughs> Expense is not an issue. Uh, the experiment began, as you'd expect. The mice used the time that they usually would have used uh, foraging for food and shelter. Uh, Just thumbing through social media. No, actually, they had enormous amounts of sexual intercourse. About every 55 days, the population doubled. So the mice filled the most desirable space within the pen where okay. access to the food tunnels was easiest. You're going to have to work to get to a downside here. When the population hit 620 mice, that slowed to doubling around every 145 days as the mouse society began to hit problems. The mice split off into groups, and those that could not find a role in these groups... Pro-Trump and anti-Trump. No, 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 no. Uh, But those that could not find a traditional mouse role in these groups found themselves with nowhere to go. 
Calhoun wrote in 1972, in the normal course of events, in a natural ecological setting, somewhat more young uh, survive to maturity than are necessary to replace their dying or old established associates. That excess that find no social niches emigrate. Here, the excess couldn't emigrate, for there was nowhere else to go. So the mice, the mice found themselves with no social role to fill. Now, does that remind you of anything in society yeah. today? Yeah. Maybe sure. young American men, for instance, as the society has evolved. Males who failed withdrew physically and psychologically, he wrote. They became very inactive and aggregated in large pools near the center of the floor of the, the universe. From this point on, they no longer in- initiated interaction with their established associates, nor did their behavior elicit attack by territorial males. Even so, they became characterized by many wounds and much scar tissue as a result of attacks by other withdrawn males. The withdrawn males would not respond during attacks, lying there immobile. Later on, they would attack in the same pattern. The female counterparts of these isolated males withdrew as well. Some mice spent their days preening themselves, shunning mating, and never engaging in fighting. This is amazing. This This is amazing. I know. Due to this, they had excellent fur coats and were dubbed somewhat disconcertingly, I'm sorry, disconcertingly, the beautiful ones. Um... The breakdown of usual mouse behavior wasn't just limited to those groups. The alpha male mice became extremely aggressive, attacking others with no motivation or gain for themselves, and regularly raped both males and females. Violent encounters sometimes ended in mouse-on-mouse cannibalism. Despite, or perhaps because, their every need was being catered for, mothers would abandon their young or merely just forget about them entirely, leaving them to fend for themselves. The mother mice also became aggressive toward trespassers to their nests, with males that would normally fill this role banished to other parts of the utopia. This aggression spilled over, and mothers would regularly kill their young. Infant mortality in some territories of the utopia reached 90%. And that was the first phase of the downfall of the utopia. In the second phase, that Calhoun termed the second death, whatever young mice survived the attacks from others and others would grow up around these unusual mouse behaviors. As a result, they never learned usual mice behaviors, and many showed little or no interest in mating, preferring to eat and preen themselves alone. And soon after, the... the uh Population of the colony collapsed completely in violence and cannibalism, low birth rates, high infant mortality, and soon the entire colony was extinct. Well, we're certainly into the not interesting in mating, interested in mating or uh, raising offspring period. Preening ourselves alone, etc. Now, we don't have uh, a similar overcrowding problem, but we do have... Uh, a, a pretty powerful philosophy in society that all of your needs should be met. You should not have to strive for food, shelter, uh, a family, etc. How, housing is a human right. Food is a human right. When you eliminate striving, you kill an animal. Uh, retirement with dignity is a human right. was uh, Barack Obama's big thing. Right, no matter what you do or don't do throughout your life, no matter how much you save or how little, no matter how lazy and stupid you are, you should have roughly as much as everyone else. You eliminate striving, you kill the animal. And to whatever extent males would gravitate toward the whole uh, uh, be a dad, have kids, play the traditional role, that is being you know attacked as wrong in every TV commercial and show and song and speech you hear 
Right. So you have that reinforced culturally in a way that mice who produce very few TV shows uh, can do. Then you add to that, you know, questionable chemicals and, and hormones and the rest of it in food, water supplies, whatever. And, and you end up with either mice or humans who don't strive. They don't form families. There's a great deal of violence um, and they have no role. They feel no purpose. Purposeless mice. Ennui-ridden rodents. Troubling. We'll have a link to this story uh, in a couple of minutes at armstrongandgetty.com if you want to read it in its completion. I left a lot out for length's sake, but it's really interesting. Dr. Anthony Fauci was asked to weigh in on the controversy around Nicki Minaj and her cousin's friend's testicle. Who asked him? And why don't they mind their own business? CBS News asked him. Okay. Nicki Minaj... I don't know her act, really. She's got 22 million followers on Twitter. And she tweeted out the other day she's not getting the vaccine because her cousin's friend's testicle swole in Trinidad. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci said there's no evidence for this sort of thing, impotence or uh, testicle swelling or any of these different sort of things. Um, He doesn't know what happened there, but there's no evidence that that is a cause of the vaccine. Has he examined the poor Trinidadian, the unfortunate Trinidadian himself? No, I think he's doing this from afar. Have not even laid eyes on the man's nards. It's so. negligence. It's malpractice. Exactly. Armstrong and Getty.